For today's message, we are going to be taking a look at the story of David versus Goliath. Very famous story in the Bible. Um, so that's going to bring us to 1 Samuel 17 as our text for, for today. I just want to kind of build an introduction leading into this. Um, at this point in the narrative, David has been anointed as the future king of Israel. Um, historians and biblical scholars and experts put David's age around 10 to 15 years of age when he was anointed as the future king of Israel. And the reason why he was selected was that King Saul was rejected by God. The first, and King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was rejected due to the fact that he was not a man after God's own heart. Rather than focus on God's will and the things that God was calling him to do, Saul focused on his own agendas, which led to him eventually to lose the kingdom. And so the question that I want to, us to focus on for this sermon is, where do we draw our confidence? What is it that makes us feel assured? What is it that makes us feel strong in the situation? Is it God and the fact that we know that he is good and he is powerful and he will see us through the circumstances of life? Or is it the situations and our assessment of our ability to handle certain challenges? So as a result, the title of this message, of this sermon, is Radical Confidence in God's Power. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at in this story today. So let's start with reading the first section here in 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. And were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soko and Azka in Aphes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on one mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to fight me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The first section that I want to look at, and I have this text divided up today in, in three sections. So for number one, I want us to take a look at the Philistine dilemma that Israel was facing. So what I want to note here is that this conflict be between Israel and the Philistines has been continuing up until this point for about 200 years, give or take. And so this is not a 
conflict that has appeared just the other day. They've been in a cycle of victory and defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Not only that, um, Israel has also struggled with idolatry, with many of the same gods or idols that the Philistines worshipped. Uh, idols such as Baal or Asherah or Dagon. And you can even read up on this and, and the culture surrounding the, the worship of these idols um, online through archaeology and, and history. And so there was very much a struggle, not just for resources, not just for power, for influence, for land, but also for religious supremacy. Oftentimes, when there would be conflict between two different people groups, the victors of said conflict would deem their God as superior to the ones they had defeated. And this is actually going to be a theme that we're going to see play out throughout this chapter as we read about David's response um, to the Philistines and to Goliath. And so now we have here Goliath who appears on the scene. And so if you convert the, the, the measurement here of his height, um, this would translate to roughly about nine feet and nine inches. Now, one point of textual criticism here is depending on what source document you look at, whether the Dead Sea Scrolls or uh, later translations that were in Greek, um, you'll either see a measurement of 6-9 or 9-9. And most scholars believe that the 6-9-1 was the more accurate measurement. Um, but regardless of that debate, uh, the text here talks about the fact that Goliath was outfitted in about 125 pounds of heavy bronze armor. The spear that he was carrying, um, with it being compared to a weaver's beam, was probably about seven feet long with an iron spearhead that would weigh about 15 pounds. So he was a tank of a man. And, and Israel is intimidated, as well as King Saul. Now, that might seem reasonable in this story, but once again, Let's think about the history that Israel and Saul had with God. And this brings us to the second focus of, of the sermon right now. Um, verse 11, verse 16 illustrate the fact of the amount of fear that the people felt in front of Goliath and the Philistines. Goliath actually issued this challenge to Israel twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. And he did this for 40 days. And the only reason why I didn't continue for a uh, 41st day is because David came onto the scene and defeated Goliath himself. So one man had paralyzed an entire army, one person. Once again, how could this happen, especially with the history that Israel had with God? I went on a little, little scavenger hunt here and I put together a list from the birth of the nation of Israel leading up to this point of the various victories that they had. And it's quite an impressive list um, if you go and take a look at it throughout the Old Testament leading up to this point. And I'm going to read uh, a few of these to you. So we have the, the Red Sea crossing and being freed from Egyptian oppression. We have the miraculous defeat of King Amalek. 
Israel also bested King Arad, a, a very powerful Canaanite king. There was also the defeat of King Sihon, King Og of Bashan. They defeated the five great Midianite kings in the region. You had the fall of Jericho. You had the defeat of the great city of Ai, the defeat of five great Amorite kings, the defeat of a regional super alliance between five different people groups in the Canaanite region. Um, I ran out of fingers. And not only that, too, you have many, many battles that Israel had won against regarding the Canaanites, Midianites, um, and the Philistines um, in that area. And you can read about all that uh, through the book of Judges. And all of these happened in ways that were either providential or just completely miraculous through the power of God. Yet, one man comes and faces a nation that has this backing and they are frozen solid. They are too fearful to face the challenge. And not just them, but the king as well. And, and we see here in the text, in this story, that King Saul is largely passive in the conflict. Rather than the king take charge and lead the people, what he does is he offers this decree of a reward that the man who goes and faces Goliath and wins against him will receive riches and honor. They'll also receive the king's daughter in marriage and thus marry into royalty. And lastly, their family will receive tax exemption in Israel. That's a pretty good deal. Wish I could get that. But hey, I digress. Anyway, so Saul, rather than take the charge himself, he tries to get out of the situation. Now, one may look at this moment and think, well, was that such a bad thing for the king to do? Should he really be condemned for that? I want to highlight, once again, Saul had an amazing history and experience with God in his life. First of all, Saul was selected by God to be the first king of Israel, so he had divine backing. Not only that, he also had received a portion of God's spirit put on him by God himself which turned him into a bold warrior king and led to him winning a lot of the previous victories that Israel had against the Philistines. So he had experience fighting them. And lastly, and ironically, Saul, scripture says, was about a head and a half taller than all the people in Israel. So he was about a foot and a half taller than the people he was leading in battle. So if there's anyone who was comparable to Goliath, it would be Saul. But yet, despite all these advantages, Saul, as I said before, was not a man after God's own heart. He didn't put his confidence in God. Instead, Saul put his confidence in his own assessment of the situation, which in times past led to him completely disregarding the commands of God and would eventually lead to him losing the kingdom and David eventually becoming king of Israel. So Saul was not a man after God's own heart. Next, we're going to take a look at David's response in the entire situation. So let's start looking back at the text, starting at verse 31 in 1 Samuel 17. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for them. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, 
you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has also killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put on a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch, which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So, David comes before Saul. And Saul essentially tells him, you're not going to win. Goliath has been fighting since he was a boy. And you, you're not even a soldier. You don't stand a chance. But what we see here is that David does not back down from the challenge and from the danger. Instead, David is bold and he's indignant. He does not allow Goliath to intimidate him. And the reason for this is because David remembers God's power in his life. And he recounts this to Saul. He, in a sense, in this section, you could kind of think of it that David gives Saul his, his resume. While he might not have been a soldier, and, and that's not his experience, he's essentially saying, I have a warrior spirit. I'm not afraid of danger. And as a matter of fact, I have been in situations where I have had to fight for my life. And so he, he essentially is showing to Saul that he has the, the will, the attributes, and the character to get the job done and to succeed. And he recognizes the skills and the fortitude that God has given him and God has allowed him to develop in his life. And David does not give credit to himself. What we see here is that David gives credit to God for his success, for his protection, for his deliverance. David's biggest focus throughout his life from this point on, and as you even read further stories about him, was to honor God and not for him to seek honor for himself, but to point other people to God. David's focus was to honor the name of the Lord. And that's the next point that we're going to look at here, fighting in God's name, which is what David came to do. So we're going to read starting at verse 41. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, 
with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, with the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and take your head from you. And this day I'll give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistine to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. We see that David, once again, does not back down, even when face to face with Goliath. And the point that I want to highlight is the fact that David says in verse 45, you come with all these physical advantages, with your weapons, and yeah, with your superior strength. But I have something that outweighs all of that. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And that title right there, the Lord of hosts, is a very Jewish, it's a very Hebrew um, title for the God of Israel, his personal name being Yahweh. And if you look in the original language, in Hebrew, David says here, I come to you in the name of Yahweh Tesava, which essentially translates as the Lord of hosts. And what he's saying here when he uses this word Sava is that God is the God of everything. If you look into any Hebrew concordance or dictionary, um, Sava basically can translate and depending on the context can refer to a host or army of angels. It's been used in the context of a, a host of people, of spiritual beings, and even been used as a reference to the celestial bodies and to creation itself. So what David is essentially saying here is Israel, not just Israel, but me, I come to you with the support of the creator, the God of everything, the one true God, the God of gods. And, and right here, we see this whole theme of the, the battle between the gods that I mentioned before, how nations would view or try to view their gods as superior between Goliath and David. Goliath starts out this challenge by cursing David by the name of his, his gods. But David responds in calling upon the name of the Lord as a source and basis of his confidence. Now, the other thing that I want to also talk about is the fact that David says he comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. What does it mean to come in the name of some cause or someone? Well, to come in the name of something is to act as its representative. So you are working in the purposes and the reputation of that thing. Um, a great example of this is brand name, for instance. We know that names carry meanings. They carry stories. And so you go to the store and you might pick a product that's a certain brand name. And we have ideas associated with that brand name. Is the product of high quality or poor quality? Is it expensive or is it cheap? Um, does the company offer great customer service or did it keep you on the line waiting for an hour? You know, there are, the names carry meaning behind them. And so David, he made it his life goal not to bring attention to his name, to his reputation, to his agenda, but to focus on God's will, God's name, God's reputation, God's agenda. 
because he wants to show people, not just Israel, but the world, this is who God is. This is what he is like. And this is what God can do when someone trusts him. So this leads us to the final section here um, in the story. And so the rest of the story versus uh, starting really, I would say about 48 through 54, um, I'm going to summarize it, but we know that uh, Goliath goes and he draws near to Israel um, and to David and prepares to attack. And David winds up his sling and fires off a stone. And it says here that the stone struck the Philistine in verse 50 and it, it sunk into his head and David killed him. And David runs over to Goliath and he takes a sword in verse 51, um, draws it out of the sheath and cuts off Goliath's head. And so the very thing that Goliath told David he was going to do, I'm going to deliver you to the beasts of the field, to the birds of the air, David instead does to him. And so Israel now um, is emboldened and they go and they chase the Philistines and they end up having a great victory that day. And so once again, what we find is that David is bold. And in this last section, what we have here is that David was an example of the power of God. And there are three main points of that that I want to highlight. The first is that God used David as he was. David did not have to change who he was for God to use him. David did not have to adjust himself according to other people's recommendations to fulfill the purposes of God in his life and in other people's lives. And that's something that I find very encouraging for myself. And that's something for us too. We don't have to change who we are for God to work in our lives. We have to trust him. We have to trust him and we have to obey him. God had developed and given David opportunities to develop the characteristics he needed for this moment. And God works the same way in our lives too. So never think that it comes down to the opinion of another person to have God work in your life. God only needs you to keep your eyes on him. He needs you and has you where he wants you and what he wants you to be. You don't have to change yourself for God to use you. The second point I want to highlight is the fact that God used what was unexpected David was a shepherd boy. He was not a soldier. He did not come from a military background. But once again, God used someone that the people did not expect. No one would have considered him. And oftentimes, God works that way. And then the other thing that I want to highlight here is God used what was considered inferior. Now, it's very possible to use something that people didn't expect, but could quickly realize, hey, that was actually superior to the, to the option that we were thinking of. But that's not what God did. God used something that was unexpected and someone that was considered inferior in this situation. David was not expected to win against Goliath. He was expected to lose. And something that I find so fascinating in scripture about God is oftentimes God chooses the unexpected and the inferior to accomplish his purposes. And I want to take a look at that in 1 Corinthians. Very, very fascinating, fascinating section of scripture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 17 through 21 and then 25 
through 31. And this is the Apostle Paul talking about the gospel and God's use of unexpected and inferior things um, to save people and, and to do wonderful things. And so it says here, he's, he notes that Christ did not send me just to focus on, on baptizing people, but to preach the gospel, um, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made to no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent or of the scholar. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Basically, where is the person who's smart, who is the debater, who's considered intelligent? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. So people did not recognize, they didn't acknowledge God through their own intellect because they considered God to be foolish. And so what was God's response to this uh, sign of human pride? This was his response. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And then let's skip down to verse 25. Because the foolishness of God, so to speak, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, so to speak, is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So in other words, God has a specific focus on those who in society who are considered the underdogs, those who are considered the weak, those who are considered the oppressed, the poor. God has a special consideration for them. God has chosen, in verse 27, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base or the... Um, the detestable things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are that no flesh should glory or should boast in his presence. But of him you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Right there, we see that God, as a regular way of working, seeks to use the things that are unexpected, the things that we consider inferior to, to do his good work, to save people, to work out his purposes. And this leads us to a picture very much of the gospel. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the fact that without faith is impossible to please God. Because we need to believe that God is, that he exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And we find that ultimate picture of placing our faith in God in Jesus Christ, who was God come in the flesh, who saved us from our sins. That if we place our faith, which is our confidence in him, and we live out that confidence in following him, we will be blessed and we will have a relationship with him and we will be saved from the penalty of our sins. And I can say personally for myself, the biggest and most impactful decision I've ever made in my life was to accept Jesus Christ as my savior and to commit my life to following his teachings 
and, and to allow his spirit to transform me into the person that I was truly meant to be, that he has known for all of eternity. And throughout all the ups and downs in my life, I can honestly say I am so happy that I've done that. And I've seen God work in my life many times in the ordinary, everyday ways, and even in a few times in some really crazy, miraculous ways. And I got to say, God's amazing. Jesus Christ is amazing. And this brings us to the point of the message as we close, which is having radical confidence in God's power. It's not about the circumstances. It's not about what's happening in your life. It's not about whether or not you think you have the ability to handle that situation. It's about having faith in God's power, having faith in how God is working in your life. And here's the reason why it's necessary to be a person after God's own heart. Your heart will follow what you trust and believe. Your heart will follow what you think is good and what you value. And so if we have faith in God, if we believe in God, we in effect are saying, God, I believe you, I trust you, you are not a liar. Everything you say is right and good and I'm going to follow you even when I'm not sure what the next step is, even if things don't seem to make sense, I trust that you will work everything out. Remember, the heart will follow what the heart trusts. As a result, for us to be a people after God's own heart, we need to place our faith and confidence in him. We need to place our faith and confidence in, in Jesus. And the whole thing just like David was a man after God's own heart, we too can be people that pursue God, that want what he wants, and that point other people to the creator so that they can enjoy a fulfilling relationship with him.